Hi, I'm Bryn Thompson. This is the Coburn Ventures Podcast. It's for clients, investors, our community of industry leaders, fellows, and friends. This is a group that loves the craft of investing, studies change, is dedicated to business analysis, and all that's behind the scenes of that work. I hope you enjoy it. Hi all, this is a five-part series on investment process. If there was a passion project at Coburn Ventures, investment process might be it. So we'll walk through a few tools and concepts that we hope might spark ideas or tweaks or even affirm your own investment process. And then we get to sit down with a few of our friends for additional conversation. I hope you enjoy it. We discussed competition for capital, a philosophy that can lead to tools that increase completion, uh, nice competition for our time, and hopefully clear decision making. Today, we introduced the integrated decision engine tool, which builds on that last tenant, especially of clear decision making. We'll walk through how the tool was developed, but listen for what the tool provides beyond the spreadsheet simple ordering of key factors in the portfolio, a common language for portfolio manager and analyst, and just enough understanding for the analyst to get what the portfolio manager is looking for and needs to succeed. I hope you enjoy it. Today, we're going to discuss a tool that has an interesting origin story. And Pip, I'll let you get right into it because this is a tool that was created out of a thought that there could be a better way and that it's okay if it's incremental, let's just start and see what would design as a tool to make better decisions. Do you want to just just tell the origin story of the integrated decision engine? Sure. Uh, It was one summer day, probably back about nine years ago or 10 years ago. And I got a call from one of our clients who, who I just cherish, I love. And, and he said, Hey, can we talk about position sizing? And I said, absolutely. And he goes, okay, because my job is evolving from just an analyst to an analyst and a portfolio manager. I want to think this through and get it. And he goes, how do you think about position sizing or what are the factors that go into it? And like coming out of my brain, uh, like right at the beginning, I said, well, there's six factors. And I went through the six factors and I said, but you know, your factor should be your factors, but this is how I structure it. Da, da, da. And he was very thankful, et cetera. I hung up the phone. I was up in Maine and in my office and I turned around, I got up. And I sort of, it hit me and I started laughing because I knew exactly what I was looking for in these six factors. And my own material, my own weekly template that I'd been using for, I don't know, the prior 15 years was not set up so that I could actually find answers to those six things. So wait, where like, were you finding answers? In other words, I had this template that I've been using since 1995 for like mm-hmm. a thousand companies and it printed out, it took like 30 days. I remember. Yeah, it was ugly, um, but I loved it. Each week I'd circle it in. Okay, so the portfolio or anything being considered for the portfolio went into that template. Mm-hmm. That Why template not? was not set up with these six ideas in mind. So in other words, I was hiding things in plain sight to myself. And I laughed because I was like, wouldn't I be better at what I did (laughs) if the information that I get every week 
that I insist upon that I make all these changes was set up with these six factors as like the six columns at the top. Right. And I could make comparisons, I could follow that. And so I started laughing and I laughed because I knew it was correctable. And literally within 15 minutes, I got on the phone with Adam Emmerich and we started what only took six weeks. About an hour later, I started laughing again because if I had these six ideas in my brain and I couldn't find this information very easily, you, Bryn, and the other analysts, you didn't even know what the six factors probably were. No, no chance. And there's no way that you would have been able to figure out, like I could take hours and do English to English translation to get there. Like, why should I? I don't know. But there's no way for you to participate in that. So if I changed a position, you might go, uh, okay, I guess. So I thought would have a lot better communication, which is ultimately one of my biggest goals in the world. And I do it so poorly so much of the time. If the information was laid out in a way that you would see what mattered to me, you could see, you could fill in the information, some of it qualitative, some of it quantitative. I could see it. And that would be the basis of our meetings. And it took about six weeks to change it. I had that just, oh my God, I, I've been doing it the wrong way for a gazillion years. It also reflected the competition for capital, like we talked about in a previous episode. And if I remember correctly, it really fit nice and neat on one page instead of your 30 page monster. Yeah, um, in fact, I got rid of the 30 page monster probably like eight months later when I was like, this is totally- I don't think you got rid of it. You just got rid of printing it out. That's correct. And Helen's life got a lot better very, very quickly. Um, she was like, why am I doing this? Um, that communication, and the, you mentioned the competition for capital, it's hard to have a really good competition if there's so much friction in just comparing the things. And that's, so what, that's one of the goals later, how we'd marry that up with position sizing, that we have this competition. Well, if you can't compare two companies that are in the, even in the same industry, off of your six factors and my, our six factors are gonna be different than your six factors. But what about when you need to cross compare, you know, a company that's in financials versus a company that's in chemicals? You have to do that in order to position size, but most people, including ourselves, did, we weren't in a position to have anything of a competition there because the, it was just, so then you just default to things like, well, I feel the position size is good and everything becomes a non-zero based game, which is just kind of ongoing incrementalism as opposed to a hard and fast ongoing competition. Or you start kind of mixing up those four jobs of stock picking. So um, one of the things that we were aiming to do with many of our tools was to understand the biases that were getting us in trouble. We've written a lot about investor biases and we all have them. And even when we you know, help put one away, another one usually pops up. So it's not that you ever really get rid of all of them for eternity. It's more of like, okay, where am I now? What are we, what are we doing here? And tools like this can help. For example, there wasn't, there was room for some conversation about market psychology, but that was something that we did want to keep a little bit separate. It's not like we wouldn't talk about these things, um, but we didn't want to dominate. And so the tool itself, and however, if any of you want to set these up or you know, adjust what you already have, the tool itself can be molded and designed specifically to respond to your team's strengths and weaknesses. 
Uh, yeah, quality of management. So if you just put quality of management, quality, that's a big deal. Well, then that becomes one of your six factors. Mm-hmm. We had our own. I also, um, and we'll go through those. They do hit on this on the four aspects of, or four jobs of stock picking. Some of them are business analysis, three are business analysis, two are psychology of market, and one is uh, valuation analysis. I remember a story with a portfolio manager long, long time ago that I worked with when I was an analyst. And we didn't have a way for me to understand what mattered to him or him to understand what mattered to me. And ultimately, when he'd put a trade in that went against my orientation, there was no real good conversation about it, which of course I wanted to have a good conversation, but there's no good conversation because there was no structure to have the conversation. What's neat about this approach, I, or at least I found instantly our meetings became much more energized. So imagine, the thir- I'm just making this up, a 30 stock portfolio, six factors, there's 180 cells and we're gonna have a competition. When we come to the meeting, we don't just go through each stock, like one after the other. Everyone's been in that meeting that by like the 12th stock, everyone's bored and wants to end. Mm-hmm. Remember, which of the 180 cells do we need to have a conversation about? Mm-hmm. So I might spend a couple hours on the weekend going through the 180 cells, circling things. Is this right? Is this wrong? I think this is too high. Why does Dave have this here? What Dan's thinking there? And then they're doing it also. And then we come and say, let's just talk about the cells that matter. Let's not talk about all 180 cells. Let's just talk about the cells that matter. So I think there are two aims for the integrated decision engine. And in a minute, I'll ask you to describe that title. (laughs) But one is clean and clear decision-making and the other one is communication between analysts and portfolio manager. Will you first talk about why you call it the integrated decision engine? Oh, maybe this is just my, another form of my dry humor coming out, but I just thought it was like this name that sounded like a black box that would make everything clear and perfect and simple. But of course it doesn't do that. It just gets us in position to have conversations that matter. So I sort of just added, I don't know. I like names of things too. So it just kind of felt good. The integrated decision engine sounded like there was a power beyond it that is, is greater than reality and kind of fun in that way. So let's talk about this communication between the uh, portfolio manager and analyst, and then we'll just get into the factors and, um, and then, you know, y'all can take it from there, however way you wish you can take it or leave it. This design of this (laughs) tool with a fancy name that was really helpful to our team. Um, So let's see, I have this theory or observation that portfolio managers jobs involve brilliant use of heuristics. Mm. Analyst jobs often in our industry um, sometimes devolve too far to being almost like an industry analyst as opposed to an investment analyst and digging deeper and deeper for knowledge. So let's suppose you have this situation or five situations a week and these two different groups, portfolio managers and analysts are going to be in the same place talking. One group's listening for heuristics and is trained in great heuristics, shortcuts to make great decisions based off of a portfolio of 30 stocks. Mm-hmm. And that's like the manager of um, insurance property portfolio where they don't really care that much about any individual port- portfolio member, but their job is to maximize you know, the returns of the portfolio itself. 
So they don't care about this fire hazard or this, they care about the portfolio performance. The other people are giving inputs that give a lot of knowledge. And those people care and are incentivized to get their properties right, so to speak, or their stocks right. And in that space, I think there's a, a need for connective tissue that can make that conversation work in an open way. So part of what we're doing with six cells, 30 stocks is saying these things matter. It, I, as a portfolio manager, I may bring my heuristics to it. You may bring a deeper knowledge. There's a combination of both of those things we need, but at least we'll know where to have a conversation and we'll identify that we're gonna contribute different things to that conversation. So that's why I think, um, that's why I think that we need tools to um, allow greater communication. This is one, but you know, a, a thesis statement is another. We try and build a lot of tools that allow for the best communication. So let's go into the six factors. Yes. Uh, first thing is to say this is not a black box. So nothing spits out. It just generates conversations where they need to be had. There's no waiting on these six factors. They're, again, they're just six factors that matter. So in one stock, uh, number five might matter more than in another stock, number three might matter more. So the six that we use, oh, and also you got to come up with your own and we'll help you come up with your own. And usually people will start off with like 11 factors. And then I'll just say, yeah, let's look at the trades. What went through your mind before you made that trade? And then we get down to more like six. And the others funnel in in certain ways. Uh, the first one for us, and there are three business analysis ones, the conviction in the business thesis itself. Is our conviction incredibly high, high, or significantly high. If it was medium, it probably was not gonna compete for a spot. And if the conviction, if it was low, well, that may be as a VC thing, but it's not usually a publicly traded company. And as an analyst, this was nice because you did have to pick a bucket and it did lead to great conversations when one of those was moving up or down. So that creation of friction right there, you can't just say you, you, know, you think that all the companies that you work on, you really believe in that thesis and it's, they're the best and the highest weighted. It's more like we had to each really think that through and then um, bring that to the table in conversation for those meetings. Uh, you, you start to gain clarity when there's only six cells and you're going to have a conversation about a cell, not a generalized conversation about a stock. The second one is range of business possibilities. And this took two components and fed into one outcome. The first component was margin expansion possibility. And the second one was typically five-year, mid-year growth rates. So in our DCFs, which we do have DCFs, in our DCFs, I would ask each analyst to pick that midterm growth rate. And that would be from like here to year seven. What we would do in that is give the analyst, and we're growth stock investors, so we would give analyst choices, seven, 10, 13, 16, or 19. And why we had room between those is we didn't want it, you know, when you're out with friends and, you know, say, would you rate this seven or eight? And they give seven and a half, that type of thing. Well, that's great with a bunch of friends eating out for dinner, but we, we don't want that here. We want to force Bryn to decide whether it's a 10 or a 13 and compare that to the other companies as well. So we'd create a chasm. So we'd take those two factors and say, margin expansion possibility and growth rate. And what we're really looking for, for us, because we do change, is we wanted wider business possibilities. So something that was a 16 with upside to margins 
was much more interesting to me than something that was seven with not a lot of room for margins. They both were okay, but we sort of think, well, if we do our work well, we're gonna be on the right side of that possibility, not the wrong side of the possibility. And we're good taking that sort of in quotes risk off. We wanted more possibility of expanded. The third one is earnings estimate change signal. I in, in, intentionally, I do not say, did they beat their last quarter? Because oftentimes that's not, our thesis might not map up with the last exactly how they report quarters. Our thesis might be different. So what we are doing though is saying, hey, when we assess that earnings, did this seem in line with what we're thinking in our thesis? Was it better? Whatever it might've been. And would have that discussion to see how our earnings assessment and the fine, fine details to others, maybe the, the big points to us, how that mapped over in terms of alignment. And in the cell, it just says positive, negative, or none. It doesn't say the amount or anything like that. Good point. I'm a big fan of using very simple communication tools and foregoing too much specificity or aim of specificity. Because if you say positive, neutral, negative, it's like, okay, now I know we're out of conversation. I don't have to think about it very long. And also you can get someone to just highlight the cells running a macro so it pops up so you never miss that. I'm also a big fan of vague quantification. You know, 7, 10, 13, 16, 19. Do we go back later and think through that? Like maybe it was eight, who knows? But a vague quantification system that forces some friction and, and you have to take a stand one way or another relative to other companies, I think helps a lot. Two of the next two are uh, psychological. One is share price extension. Generally speaking, not all the time, I believe in something that looks like mean reversion back to norms unless more and more news flow comes. And I created that thinking in 1999 um, as a tech strategist. That's my proclivity. Does that mean it's always true? Absolutely not. But without more news flow, in quotes, I kind of find that stocks gravitate away from extremely extended states. Of course, until they don't. Now, so in the past few years, we've had a lot of stocks underextended in extended states. That doesn't mean that I'm going to weight that as number one, but it may mean that amongst two companies that are competing for capital in the portfolio, one might get more of an edge relative to the other. And just because of my basic theory behind all that. The other psychological one is wildcard factors. This is sort of a catch-all and the wildcard factors that'll affect psychology over at least 12 months. So it's not like, oh, people are worried about the court or anything like that. It's, oh, there's an overhang in regulation possibility and it's not going to be decided. Or there's a lawsuit that won't be settled for 18 months and people are very negative or something like that. Something that's going to endure. Generally, if a portfolio has 30 stocks, there might be five stocks that have a wildcard factor. It's not every one. So I just want to know like, oh, there's this thought about this company and it's not going to be, it's not going to lapse for 12 months. I need to factor that in when I think about my position sizing. And then the sixth one is valuation. Um, what we would have is a, a feeder page on valuation, a separate page completely, which took three different methodology of, methodologies of valuation, kind of sum them up. And then what we'd, we would do is instead of putting them in ordinals one to 30, would put them in deciles, or I'm sorry, quintiles. So there are five quintiles. So you're either in one, two, three, four, five, because I sort of, and people that have read our pillars of jello pieces would say, 
well, specificity evaluation is not one of our things, but there is a lot of information between quintile one and quintile four. That does tell you something. Now that might be overridden by a psychological or something. So I, I just wanted to see the buckets evaluation as we summed them up to see if there's signal between two different companies, maybe a one and a three. I even think between quintiles, there's not a lot of information, but in a spread of quintiles, there can be quite a bit there. So those are the six that we used. Again, you can use, you should use whatever like works for you. Obviously don't use ours. So my first of three key points. To go a layer deeper, that's when we could see what might be hiding in plain sight. So at the beginning of the conversation, yeah, there was sort of like an epiphany moment that Pip had, but it wasn't as if then we made a few adjustments to some spreadsheets and brought in different data and voila, this new helpful tool was born. The tool actually went a few layers deeper. Some factors were unrelated, some were qualitative, some were new to the analysts. It took time and it took building it bespoke for our philosophy and our portfolio. And it only could happen because we were going to layer deeper on the thinking of what we needed. So tools we've been using for a long time, you can look back at them and say, oh, that's actually, that's my old self from five years ago. I actually am more sophisticated now. Do my tools reflect that? Second, this tool was built to harness our strengths and then remediate, if possible, our weaknesses. It takes acknowledgement of what we were not good at as a team or what our investment philosophy over pronated on to build in those remediations. So we're change oriented. It was helpful to add some counterbalances in those factors that had us do a triple take on common pitfalls for growth companies or things like that. Third and last, this tool helped Pip with his job as a PM, but also brought analysts in and provided just enough of a common language so that we could make sure we were all now rowing in the same direction on this new tool and having it really add something toward our ability to generate investable insights. So we love to just turn over all of this history and development of tools that we did as completely as possible to you in hopes that you can take anything you like about it and run with it and leave the rest. I hope this was useful. Thanks for listening.